is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast, picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanika. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be a Better Investor podcast. My name is Raik van Ikerk and in this podcast series I speak to leading investors and business leaders about uh, their investments and we also take a peek into their personal investment portfolios. We try to get a sense of how they analyze investment opportunities, what shares and assets they invest in and whether they have more hits than misses. The idea is to identify a few golden nuggets of wisdom to help amateur retail investors to become better investors. And my guest today is our very own Simon Brown. He presents the MoneyWeb Now morning podcast, but he also wears many other hats. And uh, one of them is that he is the founder of Just One Lab. Simon, thank you so much for joining us. Do you regard yourself as an investor or... Uh, professional investor? Oh, no, an investor. I'm not a professional by any sense. Thanks, Rick. Interested in the stock market, and I spend pretty much most of my waking hours thinking about it and, and engaging it and watching prices and reading sense statements. But to me, a professional is someone who would uh, manage somebody else's money. I manage mine, my wife, my sister, and that's it. Are you good? Uh, I beat the market consistently over time, which is what my metrics are. I started doing this. 20 odd years ago. Every year I've unitized my portfolio. So I know what my annual return is. And I do calendar years. So every calendar year I check, have I beaten the market for that year? And have I beaten it over a three year period? Because sometimes you get a year and you're just in the wrong space. Something happens, you didn't expect it and the market takes you out. And that's going to happen. But I need to be beating it over three years. Otherwise, I can just go and buy an ETF and go sit on the beach. We'll get to that strategy a bit later, but just tell us a bit about yourself. Where do you come from and where did your interest in investment start to pickle your fancy? I'm a KZN boy. lived there all of my schooling life, although moved around bunches. But KZN born, educated in, in, in KwaZulu-Natal, Bulwa, Shishlui, Pinetown, Durban, and dozens of other places. My father was building bridges, so we moved a heck of a lot. And so we go back to the 80s. I'm in high school. I'm getting the daily paper, I suppose, and they've got these share price things in it. And I, I'm intrigued, but I'm asking around and no one can help. My math teacher doesn't know what I'm, you know, what this is all about. And my mother and my father who separated, they don't know what it's about. But my grandfather, it turned out, had been trading and he was born in 1894 or six or something like that. I think 96. He had traded the bucket shops in Durban in the, the 20s and 30s. And he actually made money doing that, which is probably unheard of. So he had a bit of knowledge, not on the fundamental side, but on the price action and prices and stuff like that. So he would help me draw graphs with a clutch pencil and graph paper and etc. And then I discovered things like the JC Handbook. I discovered I could write to a corporate and request their annual report. And they would send this little oak in, you know, Hicks for KZN. How old were you then? Oh, 13, 14. And I would get the annual report, this 200-page glossy document, which I would read cover to cover and understand about 10% of it, you know, that sort of thing. And then Richard Kluver, yeah, Richard Kluver, I think his name was, started a column in the Sunday Times every Sunday. That sort of really gave me... I suppose, better guidance, someone who actually knew what they were doing. No disrespect to my grandfather, 
but some of you actually, you know, introduced me to things like dividends and stuff like that. But most 13, 14-year-olds would rather go and play soccer outside or climb a tree if you're in KZN. Why did you become <laughs> so infatuated with investments? Because... I think your approach could be relatively unique in South Africa. Yeah, so I was climbing trees and stuff. And I mean, there was a point we lived in a farm outside Ladysmith. We, we didn't, we were just renting a house there. And I remember the rule from my mother was when the sun went below that hill, I had to be on my way home. I was ADHD. We didn't know what it was back in the 70s. And my mother was managing it with diet and the like, but I didn't have a bedtime. So there I am, you know, even as a, as a 10-year-old kid, I don't have a bedtime. So, you know, I would read. So nighttime comes, everyone goes to bed. I would just read stuff and anything. I mean, my, my parents had a, a fairly comprehensive library. Again, I would read books. My grandmother used to con me. She would say, this book is saucy. So I'd go and read it. And I, I read French Lieutenant's Woman. I, I didn't understand. I, I knew nothing. Have you read a Warren Buffett book? Yes. When was the first one? It wasn't even Buffett. It would have been Intelligent Investor. I would have read that probably in the early 90s. I really struggled with it. It was incredibly dry, but I liked the formulaic behind it. I was always a math wizard school. I I was good at math. So I loved the numbers and I loved the formula that was put out in there and the enterprise values and stuff. The problem, of course, is back then you were doing this stuff by hand. I mean, you could get the data. Not easily, but you could get the data. And then again, there it was with you know, pencil, pen, uh, paper and calculator. Let's talk about your investments. What was the very, very first share you ever bought? And uh, I believe it was a few days before the <laughs> 1987 crash. So let's just focus on the share first. What did you buy first? Die data. I was at school. We, Die data? Die data. We, we got to remember that back then I was interested in computers, but they weren't computers really. I mean, my school didn't have a computer. I was studying computers at school, but I had to go to Pantan Edgewood College. Well, were they college. listed in 1987? Yeah, maybe just before that. And okay. So I wanted to buy a computer company and there was a couple of them and I didn't do any research to it. I bought it because it was cheap and I had 120 bucks and my grandfather made a deal with a broker for me to buy it because of course, Back then, I mean, 120 bucks, no one was going to open an account for you. There were minimum fees. I don't know what they were. I didn't even know there were fees. But I had been working since ah, since I was way young. I always worked and had jobs. And How money. old were you then? Uh, 17, matric. Mm. Yeah, so it was my matric year. So I scrape up 120 rand. I'd worked the July school holidays. I decide I want to buy data. I send the broker a postal order, which you younger listeners have no idea what I'm talking <laughs> about. But we were living in Pinetown, so I literally posted him a postal order up to Johannesburg and then phoned him and said, please buy me data. And then, I don't know, a week or two later, a share certificate arrived in the post. There was no feek or anything back then. And that was that was about the 15th of October. And and I was the proudest kid in Pinetown. I mean, I was just, I, I thought I was an absolute ace. I mean, yeah, it didn't win me friends or get me dates, but. <laughs> and then the market crashed and it was a big one. What was your reaction? Panic. <laughs> so I was at school and I don't know, I don't know, I was a high school, I suppose school finished two-ish or something. I would buy, in fact, I had a motorbike by then. So I get home and I always turn on the radio. And of course the news comes and they're talking about the market, which excites me because they never talk. I mean, there was no shows or anything. And I'm deeply excited until I realize that the market is collapsing. 
And I, I thought that actually the market had just like collapsed and I had nothing. But you had to wait until the next day's newspaper to see what happened to Die Data. No, I phoned my broker to sell it. And of course, I couldn't get through, could I? And eventually <laughs> I do get through. And my broker, and I don't remember their name. I could probably go find it. I eventually get through to them and they realize it's me with my 120 rand. He just put the phone down. <laughs> he, had, well, he had real clients losing real money. I mean, this was my life savings, but uh, he just put the phone down. And I, I don't even know what the share had fallen to. It had gone up in the week I'd owned it already because that was a go-go period. I mean, it was much like the 07 locally, 99. And I kind of truthfully kind of forgot I owned them because when I then, the dust settled and I wanted to she sell. wrote it off. Well, yeah, because they weren't, you know, my 120 rand was now worth, I don't know, 20 or something. And I didn't realize the deal was that my grandfather paid the fees on the buy but not the sell. And the fees were more than they were worth. I wrote them off. And then 96 or there's about, they did a 10 for one split and I got a new share certificate in the post and now I had 10x more shares. But many 18 years olds would feel, listen, I'm being burnt here. Well, I have been burnt. Um, I'm going to stay away. You didn't. No. And, and that's a fair question. You know what it was? I would read books like, and at that period, the One Up on Wall Street had come out. And, and my mother worked in publishing uh, and bookshops and stuff. So I had access to books. So I got One Up on Wall Street and I would read it. To me, it just made so much sense. You want to own businesses. And it wasn't even investing. It was about owning that business, about having people who work for the business every morning wake up and go and make profits and make decisions. And I can sit in my little place in Pinetown or wherever I was at the point and, and not worry about it. And they would send me some, some profits every year. And to me, that just struck me as the most crazy thing. I mean, I started my first business, and I put that in inverted commas, when I was six years old. And I was making one and a half cents a month, which was big money in those days. I'd seen the effort. I'd seen things go wrong. I'd seen having to you know, end businesses because I was doing stuff on a farm and then we moved and well, my business vanished because I couldn't do it. I was literally just opening the gate for people. And this whole idea of someone else does it for you just really, really attracted me. You said Dimension Data had a, a stock split in 1996. Did mm. you continue to hold it until 1999? Because then, of course, we had another collapse. And I think Dye Data, if I remember correctly, ran all the way up to 75 Rand. And then it came down to about 2 Rand within a few months. Oh, I can tell you the exact numbers. It hit 100 Rand on the day it listed in London. But that was the London trade. The Joburg high was about 70-odd. It went down to a buck 80. So now we're talking 2000. I'm getting smarter about it. I'm, you know, I've been trading now as well. And, and man, I was good at losing money on trading. <laughs> and I'd heard this idea about a stop loss. I've been reading some books in psychology and trading and the like. And I've got this thing on the stop loss. So I've got a stop loss on Diodata at 64 and 80. And it comes down to the stop loss. And I don't want to sell it because this is diadotum. And I bought this thing at, at split adjusted five and a half cents. But I'm talking to my wife about it. And I don't know why, because she has no interest in markets. And she's like, but if you sell it, you can, if it goes to the moon, you can. Buy. And she was just like telling me to sell it. So almost in a sense to, to show her that I was right and she was wrong, I sold it. And then my plan was in a week later when it was, you know, 100 bucks, I could go back to her and say, see, I told you, except it never went to 100. And when did you get out? It, it was 2000-ish. 
I can't remember exactly was. I know where I was living, and I remember where I was sitting when I was having the conversation with her. We were living in Virtus Hill at that place. We had a, a house overlooking Valley of a Thousand Hills, and we were sitting on our stoop looking over Valley of a Thousand Hills and angsting around this. And I sold it 64 and 80. And Oh, you did sell it? I six. did. I did. I sold it. The deep irony is that I've had two really spectacular trades in my life, and that's one of them, and none of it was intentional. What was the other one? Capitec. Bought it 20 rand in just after the 08 crisis, 09. And you still hold them today? Yeah, not as many as I held then because it just be, it becomes too big in your portfolio. But, I mean, I still hold you know, the original ones. I, I, I bought X. We got some nil-paid letters from rights issues, and some of those I took the rights, some I sold the nil-paids. When African Bank went bust, it fell to 200. I picked up some more at that point. And then pretty much since then I've been net seller. Tell us about your portfolio, how many counters are in there, and how do you select the shares you buy? So it's about 12. I aim for about a dozen. And I know that a lot of the folks think that's overly concentrated. But at the bottom of my portfolio sits ETFs. And that's more than half of my, of my investment portfolio. And then above that sits what I call my till death to us part. And then on top of that, I've got my trading stock. And then right at the pointy end, I do some actual trading, uh, mostly equity indices. And of those 12, they're all local. I don't buy international shares. Name a few. ShopRite. Um, yeah, you've spoken about ShopRite extensively on yeah, yeah. the MoneyWeb Now podcast. You've owned it for a long time and you like the dividends. I'd held Pick and Pay. Richard Kluver called Pick mm-hmm. and Pay the bluest blue chip of all. Um, he called them Royals. But then sort of 2004-ish, I'm running the numbers and I'm looking at this little upstart, uh, Whitey Besson and this little ShopRite and checkers and stuff. And I'm like, simply they're just... The numbers are better, like margins are better, market, and, and, and I switched. And it's weird because you do so many things in the investing world, not on the spur, but, but you know, you give the thought, you give the process, you make that decision, you, you actively do it. And oftentimes, yeah, neither here nor there, or a little bit. That one really, really worked for me. Yeah. So ShopRite's there, uh, Capitec's there as, as well, still. You know what my investment theme is? And this was something which from a number of books I read in, in, in the 90s, more business strategy books than investment books, because ultimately you're investing in businesses. And they were talking around the growing urbanization and consumerization, people moving into the cities, increasing their quality of life, maybe the first generation only a little bit, but the second generation very much so. And that then demand, that demand for a mobile, for banking, for food, for all of those sort of things. And that's always been one of the key themes in my sort of really long-term portfolios that I have. You know, and it's not, it's not the innovation in the apples, although I do have discovery, and that's primarily for the innovation from Adrian Gore and his team. But it's those kind of boring counters, you know, that Metrofile, which is <laughs> perhaps one of the most boring stocks in the, in the world, except that, uh, you know, there's always going to be paper uh, and regulation is only going to get stronger and that paper needs to be stored somewhere. And, you know, share price appreciation in Metrofile has been, uh, I mean, you know, my KGAR is probably middle single digit, but my dividend is running at, you know, times 10, yeah. 12, 13, 14% yield a year. Do you own Tungela? No, I owned it. I bought it at 20, mid-20s, maybe high 20s, got to 90-odd, I sold it, I thought I was a genius, it wasn't even warming up. And that's one of the hardest parts of being in the market, selling at profit. Selling at loss is easy for me, right? You got a position, you had a thesis, you're wrong, and the price has told you you're wrong. 
particularly in my shorter term stuff. And for me, shorter term could run years and years. But the thesis is provably now wrong. I take the hit and I move on because, man, pain of losing money. Well, a profit taken is never a loss. I know. So I sold my Thongela's 90-odd, tripled my money in, what, months? I mean, like maybe mm. six months. I mean, annualized return, 700%, whatever. But, you know, the difference between selling at 90 or selling at, you know, I don't know, 300 plus now is not immaterial. It's not, it's not life-changing because my portfolio, is, there's never a position that is so big that, it, that it's going to be life-changing. And Kumba and Sassel, who also saw some significant declines and then they just bounced back so aggressively. Yeah, so I picked up some Kumbas, sold them early. Sassel, I didn't touch at all. I, in fact, my Kumbas I'd picked up when, even before pandemic. My Sassels I had exited. I had held Sassel from 16 Rand in 1994. And my logic was quite simple, again, expanding planet, consumerization, oil, but also the election was coming and stuff like that. And I'm like, wait, hang on, suddenly Sasso's got tech, they can go and sell it around the world. And then Lake Charles was just becoming an absolute disaster. So I got out of Sassel, I can't even remember now, 350-ish or there's about pre, as it was sliding. And remember, of course, Sassel was falling way before pandemic because, well, Lake Charles. We've spoken about your best trades ever. What was the biggest dog you've ever bought? Oh, man, dogs. I mean, there are so many of them. I could have a nursery. <laughs> so the, the, the good story is I, I don't remember any of their names, which is probably saving me lots of pain. So if you go back to sort of the mid-90s, right, the internet arrived. I got internet very, very – I got internet in, – I'd actually had internet in, in 92, CompuServe. But that was a horror. You paid per minute and there was nothing there. And, in fact, I'd been on, on bulletin boards, telecom bulletin boards and stuff in, in, in the 80s looking for investment stuff, but never finding it, finding games and, and nonsense like that. So in the mid-90s, I'm working for myself. I've got some free time, and I'm buying shares, and I'm buying MoldMed. MoldMed? You don't remember MoldMed? No, Med. I don't. So they were medical supplier. They had some stuff. I don't know if they were a scam, but you know what it was? It was one of those <laughs> classic things is I hadn't yet worked out the buy the rumor, sell the news. So eventually the news comes out that they've got something it's to do with prostate or something, I forget what, and I buy it because I'm on chat forums and email groups and finally I found a community and they've all been talking about MoldMed, code was M-U-M, and the news comes out the one day that everything that people have been talking about for the last months, because, man, in the late 90s, the JC wasn't leaky. I mean, there was no, I mean, inside information. Little old me in Burtis Hill was getting this inside information. I mean, it, it was embarrassing when you look back. And they had this thing, and it came, and the share popped, and I bought it. And it just collapsed. Business Bank, I think I paid five rand for it. Liebenberg? No, that wasn't even him. It was, it was one of the other guys. It was one of the uh, – Business Bank was a perfectly legit. It's just they died in the, mm. in the banking crisis. All of those sort of little dodgy things. But I always spotted early, but I bought late. And then got But that's paid. a lesson. Most people, once a share drops, and especially if it drops aggressively, you just hold on. And all of your long-term investors would say, if you bought a good share, whatever that may mean, uh, keep it. But sometimes you need to sell it. And that is a difficult decision to make. How yeah. do you think about a share dropping and then making the call whether to hold on and hope it bounces back or just getting so get rid of it? No, and I have a process for that. So it depends... 
why I bought it. I mentioned a moment ago that I split my portfolio. The one part is to death just part. And those are the old cliched bottom drawer. But of course, these days, there's no such thing as, you know, GM was a bottom drawer stock. Kodak was a bottom drawer stock. It didn't work for either of them. Those shares, which I hope to own until I die or they die, hopefully me first and reap the dividends and all the rest. My logic there is when I buy the share, I do my research and I write down on a piece of paper the three things I like about a stock, about it and the three risks. And I review. You physically write it down. Physically, pen and paper. And what I do, and I keep that paper. And then what I do is every time results come out, I compare those to what my thinking was. So, for example, what do I like around, around ShopRite? Is apart from innovation, which we still see to this day with 60-60 margins. I mean, ShopRite's margins for food retailers with plus 1,000 stores are about the best in the world. So it's those sort of things. As long as they stay in place... I don't care about the price. And I've had massive drawdowns in ShopRites, at least two of them. One, pre-pandemic, partly because at points, ShopRite gets crazy expensive. And then, of course, the pandemic mm. as well. And as long as they stay in place, I'm happy. Then I've got my second tiers where I buy a stock and I hold it while it's got story behind it. And I will hold it. Cogra M3, I probably held for a decade. And it was a case of at some point, I'm going to want out of this. But as long as it's growing and revenues and everything, I will continue to, to, to hang on to it. And then, you know, again, I've got my, when will I take the, the hit on them? And then there's some sort of just speculative ones, which are basically price action. And you, you go down in a, a weekly close, 20% off the, the, the highs, and I take my money and run. Renogen, Purple Group. Got them both. You know, it, it's the same sort of thing. I mean, mm. you know, Renogen. They are very speculative. They're highly speculative. And Renogen's a fair size of my portfolio. Purple's outsized because I bought the thing at 50 cents. So I actually sold about a third of it at, at three rand and some change. And I'm kind of semi-hoping it gets back to the low one so I can pick up some more. And I think we might get there because I think results, you know, it's been a tough year for brokers. There's a good story here and I want to follow through on that story. And I think we've got some, some great value into it. But then they sort of change what they are. They're no longer the speculative, much like Capitec. But Capitec, that change, Capitec, now I'm getting crazy dividends and, and you know, they're still doing things and, and, you know, tying up with Purple and buying, going into business yeah, banking and the like. Phenomenal success, Purple Group. Mm. Just lastly, how do you look at risk because at the beginning of this interview you said you beat the market and you'd rather take that than a normal exchange traded fund and of course your risk with a etf is a lot lower than buying individual stocks especially if your portfolio only consists of around 12 counters and you know sometimes a two or the three percentage point outperformance from a discretionary portfolio could come at much higher risk than just buying the index. Yeah, 100%. And, and I think this is a great point, Rake, and I think a lot of folks don't fully comprehend that. They, they, they don't see the increased risk by having even a 20-stock portfolio compared to just buying an ETF. The, the risk is monumental. I manage it in part by about 56 or so percent of my portfolio is just ETFs, and I'm pushing that number higher as I get older and lazier. So that number now, dividend flows and new income, half of it's going in, into ETFs, but you know, only half is going directly in, in, into equities. And I manage that risk by that big base there. And then by being disciplined on exits, on, on making those decisions and being very, very comfortable to say to myself, you know what, gent, you had a compelling story. 
but you were wrong. And you know what? Probably part of it. There's no pride. I don't have any pride. And, and the reason I don't, I, I, I have pride, but not in my portfolio. Because it's not me and you looking at my portfolio. And I've got to look you in the eye and say I'm wrong. I just got to look myself in the eye and say I'm wrong. And, and that's easy. You know, I'm, I'm not here to try and beat myself. I'm, I'm here to try and make some cash. So it's that exiting and being quite happy that, you know what? You tried something. And it didn't work. And the best thing you can then do is just is just go and, and try and find something else. Simon, thanks. I think there were many golden nuggets in, in your perspectives. And uh, listen, thank you so much for sharing it with us today. Absolute pleasure. That was Simon Brown. He's the presenter of MoneyWeb Now, the podcast you can get on the MoneyWeb app every morning. And he's also the founder and the boss at Just One Lap. Show me the money. <laughs> That was the Money Web, the A Better Investor podcast with Ray Funicap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the Money Web podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. Money Web, your trusted source for business and investment insights.